0: church i'll be reading from luke chapter 15 verse 25 through 32 meanwhile the older son was in the field when he came near the house he heard music and dancing so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on your brother has come he replied and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because his brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. Thanks be, Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, choir, for that piece. I know because I've been in the office for all the prep, how much time has gone into uh, the different offerings that y'all have given us, so I'm super excited about tonight as well. Hey everybody, i um, Pastor John Jay, and I get to share a teaching with you today. Uh, you heard the scripture reading, is the second half of what is affectionately known as the story of the prodigal son. It's actually not a great title for this story, it's more like the story of two sons or this crazy father character who does crazy things no matter what his sons do. Um, if you're with us today and it's been a little bit since you've been with us, then Let me catch you up on where we've been. We're in the season of Advent. This is the third Sunday of Advent. Advent is the beginning of what we would call the church year. And that's sort of how we tell the story of Christ's life, moving through all of the kind of big moments. And of course, incarnation or Jesus's arrival in our midst. And the baby um, is the story of Christmas and Advent leads up to that. So uh, we've been talking about the sort of big images or symbols that often accompany Christmas holidays and Advent season. Uh, Sunday, the first Sunday, we talked about greenery. The second Sunday, we talked, what did we talk about last Sunday? That was a test. and Everybody passed. Gifts. We talked about gifts. And this Sunday, we're going to talk about feasting. I thought about having, and I don't have it. It would have been a good idea to have it. I thought about getting a French loaf and just keeping it up here and eating it as I preached, because that sounded like the most fun way to do this sermon, but I did not have time for a French loaf. Does anyone have a loaf of French bread under the pew that they'd be willing to share with me? I would be in no way surprised if my own son raised his hand. Let me show you a picture here to get started. This is the shelf of cookbooks in our home. Anybody else have a shelf full of cookbooks in their home? And you can see, well, you can't see all of these. Uh, got gifts in here. I've got ones that we've bought for ourselves. That middle one that says Cake Portfolio, that is Corey's cousin who wrote a book about making cake that is like full of the things we're going to talk about today. But right next to that one is this book right here called Real Cajun. This is my very favorite cookbook. I've had it, I don't know how long, but it's falling apart. <laughs> Smells like roux. R-O-U-X. Rue is a uh, sort of like gravy for the gumbo world. Um, I love this book. If you've eaten any dish that I've prepared for a potluck, there's, it's very likely it came out of this book. If you are sick and at home, or if you've just given birth, or if our family's going to bring a gift and I get to make it, it's going to come out of this book. And uh, everything about this guy named Donald Link, he's got three or four restaurants in New Orleans now, absolutely love. But I want to tell you one story from in here to get us started today. It's a story about his gumbo. He has two gumbo recipes in here. One takes literally all day, and the other one takes about half a day. Depending on how much I like you, depends on which one I'll make for you. (laughs) But his seafood gumbo here is the sort of all-day gumbo. Any good uh, cookbook, typically at the front end of it, will have just a little bitty story about why this recipe is meaningful, by the way. If you're getting recipes from online and you're on someone's blog, this little bitty section right here will turn into about 17 pages worth of backstory on the person's life before you ever get to the recipe and ingredient list. So cookbooks are better. Uh, Super Bowl Sunday seafood gumbo. Let me read you what he says about this. Remember when you were a little kid and you would wake up early on Christmas morning feeling super excited. That's how I feel on Super Bowl Sunday. Jump out of bed, start my day with a cold beer, definitely from New Orleans and begin making gumbo uh, this gumbo brimming with a louisiana bounty is his favorite to make he says in fact uh, this is the dish that made me want to become a chef my mother always made gumbo on super bowl sunday and i started doing the same when i moved out west here and he would go to chinatown he said to get all of his ingredients is that true jose is that the place to go to get the best see okay we'll talk uh, jose in the back here has an extensive knowledge of all things food related Spare no expense for this recipe. Get the freshest seafood you can find and plenty of it to extract all the sweet, briny flavors. The stock is key. It should be rich and full of flavor. The roux is made with vegetable oil, not butter, because its neutral flavor really lets the seafood shine. Um, By the way, the first ingredient on this recipe is at least six cold beers for the chef. Um, And it doesn't go in the recipe. It just makes it easier to cook the recipe uh the reason that i I love this one other than the fact that i love everything in it is um the story he tells about when his grandmother died when his grandmother died he was trying to figure out what he was going to make and as he was flying back home to her funeral he decided this gumbo was what he needed to cook for his family uh he could say that gumbo is my dish too couldn't think of a better way to honor granny than to be the one to make it for her funeral. I'll go as far as to say it's the most important thing I've ever cooked. At this time, my family knew I was working as a chef, but none of them had ever tasted my food, let alone my gumbo. So as I stirred the oil and flour to make the roux, I was overwhelmed with emotion. One moment, I would feel extremely proud. The next, I'd be overcome with sorrow. For me, that pot of gumbo was more than just food for the masses. It was my gift to granny and to my entire family. Granny usually made gumbo with chicken and sausage, but my specialty is seafood, full of crab, shrimp, oysters, simmered in a deeply flavored stock, made from a very dark roux. Not the dainty, light brown seafood gumbo you would see definitely in a store around here. As my relatives devoured the soup, I got the impression that they had never seen a seafood gumbo so extravagantly filled with seafood. Their enthusiastic response was more than I could have hoped for. It's one thing to cook for my customers and worry about what they think, but this is the first time I prepared my ancestors' food for my extended family. Hmm. Today, we're going to talk about feasting. And feasting isn't just about eating a whole lot of food at one sitting. In fact, that's often called gluttony. Feasting is the opposite of gluttony. Feasting and fasting, sort of two sides of the same conversation about how we interact with food. Now, at Christmas time, we all have our traditions, the same as we have during Thanksgiving, about the kinds of eating that are deeply meaningful, that typically bring friends and family together. Uh, and I want to just kind of zone in on that moment of the season. And we're going to use the story out of Luke's gospel to talk about good, well-ordered eating. I am aware that in a world full of all kinds of strangeness and despair and struggle and intractable problems, a conversation about the ethics of eating can seem like small potatoes, no pun intended. Um, but I've come to believe, having no good authority, first that Jesus really likes to eat. but also, eating is one of these places where we get to practice what we believe at least three times a day. We can eat with an awareness of the way that the earth at creation is in conversation with our very bodies, that God is generous to feed us of the goodness of the ground, or we can eat with zero awareness, which Wendell Berry says is a desecration itself to creation. So we have this opportunity to practice, and I feel, this is true for me, it may be true for you, that often it's the things that are most accessible to us, the everyday moments where we practice our faith, that... Uh, I would rather push aside for like the big moments when I can't wait to rescue like this cause or, or save this many people or be able to brag about this kind of like eating is just, it's just eating. And I don't know if after today you're going to eat, Theo, with any like raised awareness. I wouldn't. The, the, the fruits out of this conversation of this teaching uh, is a deepening awareness and attention to your life. So let's get to the story itself. There was a man who had two sons. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. This is one of those stories that I've preached about a lot, that you've heard sermons about a lot. And I want to retell it just really quickly from the perspective of, of eating. Probably because eating is all through the story. In fact, I would say that the story of the prodigal is a story of consumption that gets inverted. There are all of these practices around food, access to it, lack of it, that creates all kinds of moments of crisis or joy. So you heard Gabby read the second half for you. As a reminder, the story goes, that this man had two sons, and the younger of the two sons came to the father and said, I would really like to have my share of the inheritance. And so the father takes his inheritance, he divides it in half, like basically imagine ripping your own body in half, your own life, and he gives it to him. And he says, like gives him his, his BIOS is the word, his very life, not just stuff, not like half the mortgage and half of the silver, but half of his very self. And so then the younger of the two goes off to a distant country and squanders it on sort of like dissipated living like throws it kind of out into the wind and once all of it has been consumed so there's the language of gluttony no awareness of what it is he holds but just sort of like all of it down finds himself in need and not just that but there's a famine And famine takes place throughout the country and he begins to be in need. So when he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, he is not home and he gets to feed the pigs. Has anyone gotten a chance to feed pigs before? And not just in like a mafia movie where they feed pigs people. Um, You know what I mean? Don't, why did you raise your hand when I said that? Okay. (laughs) Uh, my grandfather kept a pig for a while. I did not know that he kept his pig because he was going to feed it to us one day. I wasn't prepared for that bit of information. He kept letting me feed it though and they would bring all the, we called it slop. Do you remember slop? It's just like everything that was left in the kitchen, everything that was edible or organic. She kind of poured it in the trough. That's what he was feeding these pigs. It's, it's like husks and other things. And he says in there, he's like, I'm so hungry. If only I could eat. A little bit left over from what the pigs are eating, but no one gives him anything. So it says he comes to himself and he says, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough bread to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I'm going to get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, and just imagine this like really properly, like tucks his shirt in, puts a bow tie on, gets ready to go see his father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he sets off and he goes to his father. His father sees him off in the distance and runs before he can start to apologize, tackles him. By the way, if you're the son and you're going home after stealing at least half of your family's fortune and then wasting it on terrible living and you see dad running at you, you have no idea what this approach means, right? This may not be good news. I don't know if he like gets into a crouched position or not, but the father like runs, tackles him, kisses him, says he's filled with compassion, and then immediately brings him back into the fold. That's the version of the story that a lot of us grew up with. Like There was this one son, and man, was he a loser, but then he apologized, but before he could apologize, the father, of course, God in this story, is so generous that welcomes this son back into the fold, and everybody lives happily ever after. That's probably the way that the children's version of this story would end. Of course, Gabby reads for us the second half of this story, which is about the grumpy older brother. And in all of my time in ministry, I have met way fewer younger sons than I have met older sons. In fact, I could often identify the parts of myself that are the older son. And that's where we're going to spend more of our time today. But just to recap what has happened. Like, There's so much... Eating, good and bad, ordered and disordered eating, happening in this passage. He consumes everything. There's a severe famine, feeding the pigs. He wants to fill himself with these pods. His father's hired help has enough bread to spare. A little bit later in the story, the father is going to kill the slaughtered, slaughter the fatted calf. Like my grandfather's pig that we had been fattening up unbeknownst to me the very end the older brother will say to the father in anger like this son of yours devoured your life and you're going to let him back in to eat anything off this table in fact i've come to understand the two brothers as two extremes on the same bad story the younger brother is just a glutton right he eats without awareness he consumes until it's all gone His desire runs out ahead. The older brother is a prude. And I mean it in the worst kind of way. He probably has not enjoyed a meal in years. Because enjoying a meal is gratuitous. And you know who acts gratuitous? That younger brother so-and-so. This is sort of what the story is about. And this is often how we find the world divided. This is in fact, I would have say how we often find churches divided. You've got folks that are like sort of hedonistic and they feel and they taste and everything and there are no limits and oh my goodness, imagine all the chaos. And then there's the good buttoned up girls and boys who only ever bring A's to church and never ever break any rules, but they haven't cracked a smile or delighted in God or God's world in a long, long time. And neither are alive to the Father. And this is the Father. One of my very favorite Greek words. So anytime it shows up in a story, I'm going to tell you it. It's splonchnidzomai. You can say it with me. Splonchnidzomai. Try again? That's like just... Splanchnizomai is where the word comes from. And it means like guts or innards or bowels. This is the word for the father has compassion. It shows up in other parts in the Gospels, particularly when Jesus sees the crowds on the hill and they're really hungry and they don't have enough food and he's been teaching them for a while. And then the text says that Jesus feels deep compassion for them. Jesus is It's like twisted in his insides, like his stomach growls with hunger pains. That's what the word means. This is the posture of the father. Father is aware of pain, is aware of desire, of hunger for restored relationships. And the father doesn't push those emotions off, doesn't like repress them down, but lives out of them. So that when he sees the younger son returning, all of that sort of floods out, that compassion, that reaching out for, that this is right here where it hurts and somehow this hurt or this pain is going to lead our family back to wholeness the other thing I've come to think about the sons is an inability to be present we are all right now and we are all right here that may sound like the most boring of statements ever but it feels like most of the time that is not true for for many people often myself I'm in one of two places. I'm either at yesterday or I'm in tomorrow. So I'll show you what being in yesterday feels like. I drew a really, really good picture for you. Um, This sort of looking into the past of checking to see how your past actions measure up, of sort of notating out what went wrong when, trying to figure out why that relationship isn't working and what you might have done or didn't do, right? It it often can feel like guilt or shame or regret. You're standing here and now. This is happening right now for folks in this building, in this room. You're here, but you're not really here. You're yesterday when you did the thing or didn't do the thing that you're carrying heavy inside of you. This is likely how the younger son would have felt. Heads home, but man, yesterday sure is still smelling all over his clothes. But it's not just that, right? Often if we're not here today and we're not yesterday, then we're thinking about thinking about the choir service tonight, right? The candlelight carol service. That's where we are. If you're on the staff, you're like, oh, the next thing. What's the next thing that could go wrong? Because that's what it feels like to live into tomorrow fear or worry or anxiety about what might not work out. The father is now, is here. He sees the son come home. Does not seem to be weighing what happened in the distant country, but is just fully present to the moment of reunion. Not counting failures, against him, but welcoming him back in. It's understandable that the older brother is frustrated. I mean, after all, half of the inheritance is gone, and the older brother's getting older and has got a plan for retirement, and and, and and he's somewhere else, some other place, some other time. Part of what this parable is asking of us is that we'd be present here with the affection and the welcome Of God. And the way the story tells us is through a party, through engaging deeply in delight. And this is where feasting comes in. If yesterday is about regret and tomorrow can be about worry, today is about delight. And here's the thing. Let's just be really honest with you. Uh, I've been in the church like most all of my life, in some version of church, congregational life, Little churches in the country, larger churches in the city, this congregation, which I have so many great things to say, and uh, in a lot of these places, delight is like a four-letter word. Feeling good things is a scary road to go down because it might make you feel Pleasure. And pleasure is like a super slippery road that leads to all kinds of dangers. This is why growing up in the church, often all you ever hear about is what God doesn't want you to do. And all the things that God doesn't want you to do are the things that seem super fun to do, right? Like eating Krispy Kreme donuts or kissing the girl behind the bleachers or like whatever the thing is, not at the same time, that would make for a bad kiss and a bad donut. But I remember this feeling that the Christian life was about denial of pleasure, denial of delight. One of my uh, professors at, at Duke, uh, Stanley Harawas, he has this saying that I love. Um, I, I rewrote it in the way that I, I think makes sense. The avenue of delight runs through the groin and the gut. Um, we're allowed to say those words in church, y'all. They show up all over the text. Like the Song of Songs is an entire book about the groin and the gut. And the story gets told as the delight that God has for God's creation. This is the way that our tradition tells this story. Full of pleasure and joy. The way that Hauerwass says it is, uh, he, he says he is disinterested in any God who is not concerned with your pots, your pans, and your genitals. Right? That's the stuff of life. Three times today, you're gonna eat. If you're fortunate. Maybe more, maybe less. This place of practice. There are so many rules and commandments and stories about good and bad eating in the text. It's really like a, it feels like such a simple thing. To talk about eating with awareness. To taste and to see that the Lord is good and also that what God has made is good but I very rarely do it. Uh, Marian and Lisa, I know that y'all do because is today the day today's the day. So I don't know if you know Marian and Lisa, but they have a very like intentional relationship with food. And on Sundays it is a feast day. And, uh, if you talk to them somewhere about halfway through the Sunday, you can tell that they have been feasting. Uh, and the relationship with food is one of just like, to me at least, I don't know. If I'm making this up. It feels very full of joy, full of possibility and opportunity of connection between the two. I did not ask you ask if I could tell this story, but you know what are you going to do? Um, I love meeting people who love to eat. Good, good food, lovingly prepared, is extravagant it is superfluous overflowing unnecessary for an efficient managed life we could get by on some kind of like tasteless protein smoothie and probably somebody is trying to invent such a thing so we could stop having to pause three times a day to eat we could just like pop a pill right and then we would be good to go Because eating often is like a hurried activity. You eat on your way to the next thing. Um, Eating without awareness is a desecration to creation. So the younger son shows back up home and the father hugs him, embraces him, and calls for a robe to be put around him. It's been like the fancy guest robe. And gets a ring and puts it on his finger. Which is this kind of story of reinstating him back into the fold. And sandals for his feet. And then, what does he do? Kills the fatted calf. Right? Fatted calf. And this is the problem for the older son. It's not the ring. It's not the robe. It's not the sandals. Those don't get mentioned again. The fatted calf becomes the problem. It's the part of the story that seems to stick out. Now the fatted calf different people's telling of the story, is in fact the God character. You may think it's the father, but the fatted calf is the one who dies so the party can happen. It's an interesting interpretation. But this is what the fatted calf seems to mean. There's just so much, there's so much waste. It would have been enough just to welcome him home, give him sonship back. You didn't, didn't have to kill this animal. You didn't have to throw this big, party and invite all of the friends you could have gotten by on turnips boiled with no salt that'll feed you but for some reason the father is not content to just stop at welcome but throws a party and the way he tells about the party is brilliant older son is outside in the field acting like Cain from that early story in Genesis Cain and Abel he's outside furious probably plotting how to kill his brother off. That's the way the story postures the older brother. He's outside, he's angry, he hears music and dancing. And if you hear music and dancing, you have to know that sin is close behind. And oh my goodness, God, if only you know what they were doing at home, they're throwing a party. And older brothers do not party. When he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And the slave replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf. Because he got him back safe and sound, then he became angry and refused to go in. This reminds me, this reminds me of when you, uh, when you encounter. Church folk who have decided that the doors to the church are wider than they used to be. And all of a sudden, folks are showing up in worship, in community, who used to not belong. And inevitably, there are a few older brothers and sisters who are outside, furious that this is happening. Angry and refused to go in. If you're going to let that person back in the fold, then I don't want to come inside anymore. This is the tragedy of the gospel, is that so many folks who knew the story can't imagine that the story was bigger than they had been told, that the party is full. Or that God will demand that the party is full. And if you won't come in, then God's going to send somebody else out to gather up whoever is at the edges of society and bring them in to the party. And going to feed them the fatted calf. Not going to feed them boiled turnips. Going to feed them the good stuff. Because that's just what God is like. Listen to how the father comes. The father comes out and pleads with the older son. But the son answers the father, listen, you for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you, never disobeyed your command. Yet You've never even given me a goat so that I can celebrate with my friends. Father, I haven't smiled in 35 years, and it's all because of you. Like, that's, that's the story. But when this son of yours came back, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, I guarantee you, he's probably never kissed somebody either. Because God forbid. You know where kissing leads. It leads to feelings. It's the same place that chocolate leads. To indulgence. But after this, after this brother devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. But then the father said in this line. It's like right kind of in the center of Luke's gospel. It's a little bit like the Sermon on the Mount where as it is in heaven, so also on earth is kind of in the center of Matthew's gospel. This line right here, I think, maybe says it all. This child. Doesn't call him even son anymore. It's this affectionate child. You've always been with me. Everything that I have is yours goats, rings, robes, sandals, fatted calves, affection, joy. It's all been yours. But then this line. But we had to. We had to. We must celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life he was lost and has been found this has become the spirit of God that I most recognize is this voice we had no choice but to party I am um, I am burdened by the false sense of importance, that it is my job as the pastor and just as a child of God to save the world. And it is exhausting me, as it likely exhausts some of you. When I read this story, I feel an invitation into a different kind of life where God is wasting affection, is wasting grace and forgiveness, just wants us there at the party and the party becomes this sign this symbol this reminder of what's to come like heaven is not supposed to be whatever you imagine heaven to be it is not supposed to be a boring place where we no longer feel and yearn and desire and delight in fact it's supposed to just simply be those things at the end of the book of revelation the image is of the marriage supper of the lamb and it is quite a party But why is it that God's people are often so afraid to be gratuitous and superfluous, to let these things overflow, to enjoy? Joy is available even in the midst of suffering. Those two things are not separate. It is bringing attention and awareness to the gifts that God has given us right now. You are going to leave this place. And at some point today, you are going to sit down at a table or place something unwrapped on your lap or you're going to receive some bit of food across a counter and you're going to have a chance to be present to a moment of ridiculousness. We did not have to be made this way with taste. It is not necessary to fuel our bodies. Somehow, God knit into us This predisposition to crave and to taste. And when you feel your inside, your splankna, smell and reach for and crave and desire, you have a choice. You can repress the thing. You can deny. Or you can be grateful that all good things are from God. The language in the Psalms is the same language of those who know how to feast, which is taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm going to end with, a, I've been reading a book, rereading a book this week by, um I never know how to say his name, Robert Farrar Capon. Is that right? Is that close enough? Okay. Um, a writer... A theologian he has an amazing book called the supper of the lamb and it's like this big cookbook about how to cook a lamb i think for eight people four different ways but it's also a meditation on food and the practice of eating Uh, for instance he says that uh dieters are sort of like the furthest from god that you could be um right because feasting and fasting is the posture we would have toward food not a fear of it not not this thing is itself evil and we should keep a distance but but how do we settle in with bodies that crave? But he has this little reflection he wrote for Advent I want to share with you. I think gets at some of what we're saying today. Because this image of the divine is one that I carry around. Advent is the church's annual celebration of the silliness. From Selig, which is German for blessed. The silliness of salvation. The whole thing really is a divine lark. God's fudged everything in our favor. Without shame or fear, we rejoice to behold his appearing. Yes, there is dirt under the divine deliverer's fingernails. But no, it isn't any different from all the other dirt of history. The main thing is, he's got the package and we've got the trust. Lo, he comes with clouds descending. Alleluia and three cheers. What we're watching for is a party. Party. And that party is not just down the street making up its mind when it's to come to us. It's already hiding in our basement, banging on our steam pipes, laughing its way up our cellar stairs. The unknown day, an hour of its finally bursting into the kitchen and roisting its way through the whole house is not dreadful. It's all part of the divine lark of grace. line's really good um by the way i love my mother-in-law so i don't take it in that way but he says god's not our mother-in-law coming to see whether her wedding present china has been shipped he's a funny old uncle with salami under his arm and a bottle of wine under the other we do indeed need to watch for him because it would only be such a pity if we were to miss all of the fun During the season of Christmas, in the way that we have chosen to celebrate it in a lot of parts of the world, it's a dark season, it's a shadow season, it can get cold in many parts, it can feel desolate in lots of ways. And so humans over time have devised ways to carry joy, stubborn joy into their midst and feasting is one of these ways. My challenge to you as we leave this place is to eat with intentionality and to prepare with intentionality. I said this morning uh, at our ten o 'clock huddle that um, there was this show I love it's one of my very favorite shows called the Great British Baking Show, produced by Jesus himself <laughs> <clears throat> it 's such a lovely show, and uh, there's this character named Valstone, she was one of the contestants at the time, and when she uh, ended up off the show, um, she was a, a, an older lady, a grandmother, and she would when she would cook uh she would be at her station and she would like dance like this while she was cooking dave did you you remember these episodes because i know that you and cindy watched them like six times over just like us right and she's cooking and uh when she ends up uh leaving the show they do these little interviews these exit interviews and she um she says the thing that i hope is true of my life and hope is true of your life too Um, the way that she cooks is like sort of an ethic of living she goes when i cook I'm preparing something special for people who mean something to me. And when I'm sitting there, I'm stirring in the flour, I'm also stirring in love and care. And when I bake it, I bake it in love. And when I give it, I give it in that spirit. Because these people mean something to me. The life that we live, we like infuse it with this affection, with this sponk and with our insides. And we offer it to those we care about or to the world that we love because God loves it, hoping that they receive with some kind of delight and joy. If you sit at the bounty of God, and daily you sit at the bounty of God, and eat without gratitude, you are missing the kingdom that is in our midst, When Jesus breaks bread with those he's not supposed to break bread with and the religious leaders come up and say, they can't be here. He keeps telling them the kingdom of God is in your midst. You just have to enter in. So, friends, it is Advent season and it is also the season of feasting. So may we be a people who eat with abandon from the overflow of the table of God without shame or guilt but knowing that delight is itself a gift that you have been given. May you, each time you sit at the table, receive the gifts of the earth with gladness, knowing that death is also present at this table and joy intermingled as well. And may your hearts be glad and rejoice. We must celebrate. Because daily, moment by moment, those who are lost are being found. Maybe even you, maybe even in an hour at lunch. Would you pray with me? God, for the bread and the cup of your body and blood, we give thanks. And for every instance of creation broken open and poured out, for food and drink on the table, we give thanks. For the grounding reality that you've made us creatures who crave, we are grateful. And for the many instances when we consume without attention, we confess. We would like to be ready for the kingdom whenever we feel brave enough to step into it, God. So give us a sense of lift, of feast, of more than enough and then some we would find those who have never tasted the overflow and show them that you in fact are good hear our prayers in the name of the father the son and the spirit Amen. amen